by telling you three stories, two of them from classic literature, one of them from a great but underappreciated film. Then after that, I want to tell you the story about the Israelites' despair amid the Babylonian exile, and then after that, I want to tell you the story of Jesus' counsel to his disciples concerning anxiety in Luke chapter 12. In other words, I'm going to begin this sermon by telling you five different stories. And just to be clear from the top, we're about to be all over the place. As I move from story to story, it won't be at all clear what relevance any of them has to the next. But I promise if you'll stick with me, it will all come together in the end. Deal? Okay, then here goes. Story number one. In the opening pages of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf the Grey has just explained to Frodo Baggins the significance of the ring Frodo holds. There's a dark force seeking out this ring, Gandalf explains, desperately desiring its power for itself. And it will stop at nothing to get this ring. And thus, Gandalf explains, Frodo has been tasked by the forces of fate to be the one to dispel this darkness. It's a severe situation, Gandalf explains, one in which Frodo has been assigned a central role. To which Frodo then says to Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. To which Gandalf replies, and so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given to us. I wish it need not have happened in my time, Frodo says. Yes, Gandalf replies. But all we have to decide is what to do with the time given to us. Okay, that's story number one. Now on to story number two. In the year 1348, the Black Plague broke out, broke out across Eurasia and North Africa, ultimately killing some 200 million people over the course of the next five years. And amid that time, the Italian writer Giovanni Boccaccio began to write his now classic work, The Decameron. And The Decameron, meaning the 10-day event, tells the story of 10 friends who, on account of the plague, decide to take flight to a secluded villa outside of Florence so as to escape the plague's ravages. Here, removed from society and socially distanced together, if you will, these ten friends, scared of what's happening in the world around them and feeling helpless about their inability to change it or control it, here these ten friends decide to respond to their circumstance by telling one another stories. Boccaccio's tacit suggestion as the author being that amid our most perilous times as human beings, 
the act of telling stories to one another can be among the most powerful tools we have for remaining hopeful. For nothing one of Boccaccio's characters claims can be so awful if the proper words are used to convey it. In other words, in our most difficult times, nothing can contain the power of a truly great story. Follow? Okay, that's story number two. Now on to story number three. In the 2016 film Genius, a film about the relationship between the early 20th century novelist Thomas Wolfe and his editor, Max Perkins, in that film, there's a deeply moving scene where Wolfe and Perkins are walking through the ravages of Depression-era New York City, looking on at a horde of people waiting in line at a nearby soup kitchen, when suddenly Wolf begins reflecting on his own situation as a novelist and on how his daily work as a mere storyteller is but a playful luxury while all these others are suffering mightily amid the societal breakdown. And as he reflects upon this, he ashamedly says to Perkins, my work is frivolous. My work as a storyteller is frivolous. Minutes then pass before Perkins can find the right words of response, but finally he offers Wolf this. He says, you know, I think back in caveman days, our ancestors would huddle around the fire at night, and wolves would be howling in the dark just beyond the light. And so one person would start talking. He would tell a story so that we wouldn't be so scared in the dark. Did you catch that? The wolves would be howling just beyond the light. And so one person would start telling a story so that we wouldn't be so afraid in the dark. It's just beautiful. Okay, enough with that story. On to story number four. How lonely sits the city that was once full of people, begins the Old Testament book of Lamentations. A collection of poetic despair compiled during the time of the Babylonian exile. Oh, how lonely sits the city. This extended lamentation begins. All her gates are desolate. All her gates are desolate. And on and on go the lamentations of this people who were cut off from their home. That is until midway through this compilation of despair when suddenly the voice changes tone. And suddenly we hear these hopeful words pierce the darkness saying, but yet all of this being so, this I call to mind. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That His mercies never come to an end. That they are new every morning. 
For great is God's faithfulness. And for this reason, writes Lamentations, I have hope. And from there, the Lamentations turned into stories, into stories of remembrance concerning the ways Yahweh had delivered Israel in the past and into reflections on how if Yahweh had done it before, surely Yahweh would do it again. Hope through story. His mercies are new every morning, they thus recalled. For great is his faithfulness. Okay, that's story number four. Now on to story number five, the last one. In Luke chapter 12, we find Jesus talking to his disciples about worry and anxiety. And about how they should think about and how they should try to deal with these human realities. And let us remember, it's not for nothing that Jesus is talking to his disciples about these things. For this juncture in the narrative, it has become increasingly clear to them that they are living in an immensely pivotal moment in human history. For they have now, by this point in the story, confessed that this Jesus whom they are following is not just a great man, but that he is indeed their long-awaited Messiah. And what's more, having confessed that and having believed that, they've seen the way that Jesus has nonetheless been scorned by and harassed by many of their local leaders, just as they have watched as he has met their aggression with love and has met their violence with mercy, and thus they have come to the somewhat unwelcome recognition that to live the way of their master to follow this man as Messiah will not be to assume by force the reality that they won't, which is originally what they thought following their Messiah would be. Yes, by this point in the story, they've come to the recognition that to follow Jesus as Lord will not be to suddenly acquire control over all the hostile powers of the present world, but will rather be to trust simply in the faithfulness of the God that their master Jesus calls Father, even though and even when that God's ways seem to them utterly inscrutable and entirely overwhelming. Yes, they've realized all of this by this juncture in the story. And so in this passage, Jesus knows that his disciples are anxious and overwhelmed and afraid. And so he begins to speak to their existential concern by saying, do not worry. Do not be afraid. And then so as to aid them in this otherwise impossible task, he begins to tell them a parable. That is, he begins to tell them a story so as to bolster their hope in the sovereignty of and the goodness of this otherwise mysterious God. Okay, enough of story time. 
Five stories later, let's now address why I've spent so much time telling stories. And moreover, why I've spent so much time telling these stories. Well, the answer to that first question is quite simple. I've spent so much time telling stories because I believe that Giovanni Boccaccio was right. That amid our most perilous times as human beings, telling stories to one another can be among our most powerful tools for remaining hopeful. I believe that. And so having said that, the answer then to the second question is equally simple. I tell these particular stories because we are right now living through perilous times and are thus in dire need of hope. For as the editor Max Perkins would put it, right now wolves are howling in the dark, just beyond the light. And we need to hear a good story so that we won't be afraid. Do you follow? Well, I'm going to tell you a really good story in just a minute. A really good one. But before I do a quick word on where we are. As I preach this sermon, this final sermon in our Songs That Sustain Us series, we've now been removed from our sanctuary for 20 weeks. 20 weeks I've stood here and preached to an otherwise empty sanctuary. And the pandemic that keeps us apart in many ways, like the plague that kept those apart in Boccaccio's Decameron, this pandemic is now more problematic than it was when it first begun. And so as much as we want to get back to our normal everyday lives, we nonetheless still can't five months later. And thus our increasing awareness of just how little control we have over all of this and over when we can indeed get back to normal, our increasing awareness of this not only fills us with frustration, we're long past that point, but it begins to fill us with a low-grade form of depression, despair. For we're not used to feeling this out of control of things, right? We're not used to feeling like we can't, if we try our hardest, impose our will on the world. We're not used to that. And thus we find ourselves, like Jesus' disciples in Luke chapter 12, increasingly anxious and worried. Feeling increasingly impotent about it all. And thus increasingly aware that our faith in Jesus is not going to be a shortcut to getting what we most want and desire. That as unwelcome as it is to admit, we are realizing that that, unfortunately, is not what our faith is about. That we won't be able to just pray it all away. And so in our extended exile, our groans of lamentation continue to grow deeper and more pronounced. 
so pronounced that we, like the Israelites in Babylon, also cry out, how lonely sits the city, her gates desolate. How lonely sits the sanctuary. As Lamentation says, her priests groan. I look at the faces of priests who groan. In a word, we all don't like this. We don't want this. We wish it would just all go away. And we, like Frodo Baggins, find ourselves saying, I wish this would not have happened in our time. It's okay that it happens in the world, but I wish it hadn't happened in our time. Am I right? Well, let me then remind you of what Gandalf the Grey said to Frodo in response to that. So do all who live to see such times wish that it had not happened in their day. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given to us. In other words, we can either grumble or we can grow. We can either stew in anger or we can start to act. We can either lead lives of quiet desperation, as Henry David Thoreau would say, or we can live up to the challenges of the moment. We can either give in to hate, or we can hold on to hope. And as your pastor, I beseech you, let us hold on to hope. So to pull this all together then, Giovanni Boccaccio says that stories supply us with hope when we most need it. Just as Max Perkins says that stories in times of darkness keep us from being afraid. So then in this time of present darkness, this time when we need hope now more than ever, I close this sermon and with it I close this sermon series by telling one simple story. A story that for those of us who believe it is the most important story ever told. And I tell it today with the hope that in hearing it anew, it might bolster our courage to face the climactic moment in which we now live. Okay, here it goes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in Him was life, precious, full, robust life, and that life was the light of the world. Well, one day, because God so loved the world, and because God saw the world undergoing such pain and suffering, one day God the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
full of grace and truth. He was born a human baby in first century Palestine. And they gave him the name Jesus. And as time passed, that baby grew in stature and wisdom. And when he was 30 years old, he was baptized in the Jordan River by a man named John. And after that, he spent the next three years walking the dusty back roads of Galilee, telling everyone he met something very difficult to believe. He told people that he was God in human form. He told people that he was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. The one whom they had been anticipating for hundreds of years. The one who would restore the kingdom to Israel and who would bring everlasting peace to the ends of the earth. And just when his message was really beginning to catch on, just when significant swaths of people were beginning to follow him and champion his message, just then he was crucified. Do you follow that? This man who said he was God, this man who said he was the long-awaited Messiah, this man in whom so many had placed their hopes, this man who promised deliverance from despair and darkness, this man was suddenly crucified. Killed, just like that. Some God, some Messiah, some Deliverer. But then, so the story goes, just when all seemed lost, just when all had given up, just when despair had covered the world, Three days later, a woman named Mary went to Jesus' tomb. She found that it was empty. And finding it empty, she began to weep because she thought his body had been stolen. She thought this was just one more insult on top of the ultimate insult. And so openly there, she wept. And she wept for herself. And she wept for her friends. And she wept for the world and she wept on account of the inevitability of darkness's final word. But as she wept, suddenly this same Jesus, this same Jesus in the flesh, suddenly he appeared beside her and he said to her, Mary, why do you weep? Why do you weep? His implication being not only am I here, but in my being here you see that I have overcome everything. Everything you are presently weeping about and so much more. And then not long after that, the same Jesus appeared to all of his disciples. And for 40 days further, he continued to appear to them, teaching them, encouraging them, preparing them for what was to come. He told them that they were now responsible for going forth and telling everyone his story, even when and especially when times were tough. For in this world, he assured them they would have trouble. 
And that's when he told them that he would send them his spirit as a guide, his spirit as a helper, saying that his spirit would give them courage and faith and guidance and peace and hope when they most desperately needed it. And then just before he left, he said to them these words, And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. End of story. Family, right now the darkness gathers just beyond the light. The wolves howl. The worry and the anxiety and the fear grows. Our cities and our sanctuaries lie desolate. And our impotence to control the world around us becomes increasingly obvious. But this story, if we but believe it, this story reminds us that even when we can't conceive of how or when, This story, if we but believe it, reminds us that the light does shine forth in the darkness and that the darkness will not be able to overcome it. This story reminds us that even when circumstances feel like crucifixion, resurrection is always coming. And so, in the words of the Israelite poet before us, this story we call to mind, and for this reason we have hope. For in this beautiful story, we remember anew that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies never do come to an end, that they are new every morning. For great, we remember, is God's faithfulness. Yes, if we will but trust this story, and I implore us to trust this story, if we will but trust this story, it will be for us as the hymn we are about to sing claims it is. This story will be for us strength for today, and bright hope for tomorrow. The story of Christ our Lord, the story of us, his disciples, the story that sustains, the story that gives hope, now and forevermore. Amen.